scientists play a huge part in our everyday lives. Climate change, helping to solve the world's energy problems, improving our health, and as we've experienced throughout the pandemic, saving lives by responding with fast-tracked global vaccines. There are so many other ways we're positively affected by new discoveries. But how are scientists turning breakthroughs into world-changing businesses? It's one thing making a discovery in a lab, but taking that idea and starting and scaling up into a successful business is just as challenging. From encouraging young people into science in the first place to avoiding startup pitfalls and onto growing a business, even becoming a worldwide leader. In this series, we're going to hear from those who've built a successful science business as they share some of their secrets with us. I'm Hannah Previtt, a business journalist with The Times, and welcome to the Science of Business. In this episode, we're going to talk about funding your business. With most science and tech businesses needing cash to fund vital research and development, they often need capital to get them off the starting blocks. But what sort of investment is best and from whom? How much equity should you give away? To help us understand more about the complex process of raising finance and to give you the benefit of their vast experience, with me is venture partner and innovation expert Sam Jima and entrepreneur, investor and non-executive director Sherry Kutu. So for any new business, accessing the right capital at the right time can seem quite daunting. And there's all sorts of terminology to get your head around from angel investment, pre-seed, seed, venture capital. It's an absolute minefield of jargon. So I'd like to start by giving a really brief overview of what each term means and at which stage it might be applicable for a startup. Sherry, if I can start with you, you are a prolific angel investor and have invested in some very well-known companies including LinkedIn, Zoopla and Lovefilm. What does the term angel investing mean and at what stage does an angel tend to get involved? Angel investing is the first funding that goes into a company and it usually means individuals who are investing their own capital. Usually what a startup entrepreneur would do would be reach out to friends, family and angels and see where they got a good match. And what you should be looking for is an angel that understands your business, hopefully has experience as an operator in your business so that they can join you on that journey and help you navigate any barriers that may place themselves in your way so you can remove those barriers and continue to grow the business successfully. And can you just give a flavour of your own experience of angel investing? I've invested in about 70 companies direct over the past 20 years. What's enjoyable is when they grow to have billions in revenue and millions, if not tens of millions of customers, because you know that you've helped somebody navigate that journey and super satisfy customers that weren't being satisfied either at all or being satisfied by the incumbents if it's an existing market. I love investing in things that matter. So for me as an angel, it's really important that whatever the service is, is something that I believe in. So for instance, investing in 
LinkedIn a, a long time ago was because I really felt it was important for professionals to connect with others in order to figure out things that weren't written in books. It is to help businesses find the talent that they need to keep on growing very, very quickly. And the number one issue for many companies, particularly startups, is whether or not they can find the right person at the right time with the right skills. Solving that to my mind, is the number one problem that blocks us from economic growth in the UK, well, and actually anywhere on the planet, basically. How long do you tend to be invested as an agent investor? It's quite a long-term thing, isn't it? Uh, Yeah, I mean, the research shows that the vast majority is a hold for between seven and nine years because angels come in first before venture capital companies. Venture capital companies usually come in, well, they've got a 10-year time frame on their fund and you come in before the venture capitals. So you have to assume that the money that you invest, you will not see any return for at least seven to nine years. You could see a loss fairly quickly if you haven't done enough due diligence, but if it's going to be successful, you need to anticipate that you won't need that capital, you won't need that cash back for your own uses for, you know, close to a decade. It's not a short term bet. And Sam, so as a venture capitalist, when do you tend to get involved? Perhaps shed some light on this seed, pre-seed investing and venture capital as a whole. Just help us demystify it. I think the first thing I'll say is not every business requires uh, venture capital funding. Venture capital is typically going to an institution that has expertise in the sector or area in which your business is in, where they can invest and also bring expertise and value add to help you scale your business. Now, there'll be some businesses that just by the nature of the business, they'll need that institutional help. There'll be some businesses that are more lifestyle type of businesses that could do very well that don't need the institutional help. And the reason why this is important is if and when a venture capital firm invests in your company, they would be looking to make a return. And for a venture capitalist to make that return, the business needs to grow to a certain size. So certainly here at Lakestar, we'll be looking at businesses that have the potential to be valued at in excess of a billion. And there are many successful businesses around the world that are not worth in excess of a billion. So that's the first thing. Your aspirations as an an entrepreneur have got to be aligned with what venture capitalists want to achieve. In terms of the stages at which venture capital gets involved, they all have very different areas in which they specialize. Seed is very similar to what Cherie said earlier, the angel stage, where the venture capitalist is probably the first institutional investor sometimes alongside angels or just after angels, and where in terms of the stage of development of the business, it's really an idea. And sometimes it's just an idea with a business plan on paper. And the understanding is if you're investing in a business at that stage, it will have to go through several iterations to identify the market and the product fit, how you sell to your customers, who are your core customers, what type of management team do you need to grow the business? So seed is a very early stage and pre-seed is even um, earlier than that. If there's a venture firm operating at that stage, they're very similar to the angel investors that uh, Cherie was talking about. But then beyond that, you get to what is called Series A. And Series A is traditionally where the business has got product market fit. So you kind of know what your product is. 
you know that someone is willing to pay for the product. And what you're looking to do is to scale the business. And the amounts of money that you can raise at each and every one of these stages varies enormously. Obviously, after Series A, you've got Series B, and it could go right to CDE, where you begin to talk about growth capital. Typically, at the seed and pre-seed stage, you're talking about investments of hundreds of thousands rather than millions. I think once you go beyond the seed stage, you can expect to attract millions of investment. But again, this all depends on the industry you're in, the sector you're in, and the type of business that you're operating. We've been involved in seed rounds where the businesses are valued at tens of millions because the founders are very proven. And also maybe the sector they're in is a capital intensive sector. So right from the get go, they need a lot of cash in order to even prove that the idea would work. When we're thinking here specifically about science and technology businesses, they generally need to be well capitalised from the beginning, don't they? You can't bootstrap. So it means funding the business on a shoestring and waiting as long as possible before you take external cash. The market has changed a lot. 25 years ago, lots of entrepreneurs I knew and your instinct was to bootstrap. You know, the venture market wasn't as well developed. The angel market wasn't as well developed in the UK. The incentives that government has put in place to encourage people to invest weren't as sophisticated as they are now. So your classic entrepreneur tried to bootstrap or take a loan. And if the directors took a loan, it was often secured against their home if they had one. I mean, the market has moved on, but it also doesn't really work as well, I don't think, when you're looking at um, life sciences businesses where you've got quite a long gestation period. You need a lot of capital to even prove that your product works. So the risk is by trying to bootstrap that kind of business. You never get to the stage where you can prove that your discovery innovation actually works because you never had enough capital to get out of the gates. Not to mention that for a lot of these discoveries, the markets are global. Scientists working in Manchester or Cambridge or London or Leeds it's not the only one probably working on this. And so if you don't have enough capital, by the time you get around to it, you could find that someone in another part of the world has discovered something similar with more capital and they're ahead of you. So the competitive dynamic, not to mention giving your idea a chance of succeeding, means that you've got to have the right sort of capital right out of the gates. And I can see Sherry there nodding along. Yes, I think it was the juxtaposition of capital and talent. You sometimes need capital in order to get the talent to join you so that you can explore those markets and find the companies that want to buy your scientific invention. You could have an amazing invention, but not have a person who's capable of reaching out to the right company that you would sell to in another country or even in this country. And the translation of the science into something that someone can buy often does need capital. So to your point earlier, how long can you bootstrap? If you bootstrap for too long and the other company in the other country that has had access to angel investors or early seed, they will be able to hire the person who has done this three, four, five times. There's very much a science to bringing something to market. If you're the scientist and you've never brought something to market before, you will struggle compared to somebody who's done it four or five times before. So bootstrapping 
can actually be very dangerous in the scientific sense. For science-based companies, the beauty about them is that they don't mind geography. You can do a, an extremely fast geographic rollout to many, many countries very, very quickly if there's proper science and tech behind what you're doing. But if you don't know how to do that and you haven't hired someone who's done that before, you won't expand as fast. The trick on scale is getting it accepted by the market, not the idea. Ideas are actually quite cheap, but the exploitation of the idea and the tweaking it until you've got one, 10, 100 customers buying it, that's the art of actually scaling up where you do get the competitive advantage at a nationwide or even a regional-wide basis. You, you have to prove that you can take it beyond the idea. And most people would want to see the whites of the eyes of a customer and really understand from the customer's point of view what it's doing for them. And one of the things that's underpinning the conversation about bootstrapping is around equity, right? And one of the things that popular shows like Dragon's Den have done is brought to the fore the idea of equity and that you should hang on to equity at all costs and that you're giving away something very precious. So how should anybody listening approach the equity conversation? You're partnering with somebody who's going to help you get that company from, let's say, 10 customers' hands into a billion customers' hands. So what I say to somebody about, oh, I'm giving away too much equity, it's like, well, are you going to help me grow the value from, let's say, 10 million to a billion? That's quite a few orders of magnitude. Now, if you don't raise enough equity, it's less likely to grow because you have to bring other people onto your team to allow you to know how to grow that. Let's say you've put in 100 million and it's a I don't know, series B or C or something. You need to prove to the people that you raised money from that you're a good steward of their money because you raise money from limited partners and other companies. Sometimes they're sovereign wealth funds, maybe they're pension funds if it was outside the UK and they want their money back. So if I'm, you know, a Californian investment pension fund or I'm the Canadian pension fund, I do take positions in early stage companies and sort of series B, series C. And I have to make sure that my investments are going to be able to pay off to the people who I'm investing for. So you're not giving away equity. You're negotiating with others who have raised the money from somebody else so that they can show that they're successful. I always think of it as continuum. How much do they need? If Sam needs a return on investment, if you're in the public markets, 5% per annum is pretty good. If you're in VC, you probably want to aim at 50. You know, that means if you invest 10, you kind of want 100 back, or you at least want 50 back. And that's a good thing. So the reason why you know Sam was pointing out, you have to have the aspiration and the market has to be big enough to be able to command a billion. That's so that they're maths add up for their investors. If they invest 10 and they get out 10, that's not going to be seen as successful. They invest 10 and they sell it for 100 and they net 90. That's pretty good. And they'll be able to get other investors in the future as well. Now, pretty simple with angels because angels aren't reporting to a fund and they have generally not raised money from other people. It's their own funds. But once you get into VC, the conversation has to be respectful that they have made promises to others, usually within 10 years, to pay back that money. Cherie is absolutely right. I agree uh, very much with everything she said. Uh, if you've got a highly cash-generative business, you might not need external funding to grow. The, a lot of the businesses we are talking about in the world of science 
have a long lead time from idea to crystallizing the innovation to becoming a business and then becoming a business that has sales and then employees and then scaling up. You need partners along that journey. Some of the partners you'd employ directly, some of the partners would bring finance. And the price is a share of your business. But the positive thing is it means that they are aligned with you. They want the business to succeed in the same way as you hope that you want it to succeed. I think one of the challenges around these ideas when they've come out of universities in the UK is whether or not the founders have enough equity to be incentivized as the business grows. If you end up as a founder of a business and you've got a tiny share of the business and it's lonely um, running a business, it's hard work, it's all-consuming, it's not as fun as if you have a meaningful share of the business. Yes, you give up equity, um, whether it's the university takes a chunk or venture capitalists take a chunk or angels take a chunk. I think along that journey, the founders have also got to be incentivized or the founding team that are leading the business and doing the work daily have got to have enough of a stake in the business to be incentivized to go on what is, as Cherie said right at the start, a long journey and a journey that is iterative and is all-consuming. Sherry, what should entrepreneurs be looking for from their investors when they're approaching them in the first instance? Not just their money, for sure. I think if you look at the things that make it most difficult to continue to grow, the first is talent acquisition. Can they help you get other people to join your team who know the journey that you're going to be on. The second is develop your own team and help your own team develop quickly enough as you learn the things you need to do to satisfy the customers that you found your technology or your science has been able to do. The third, and I think this is really important, particularly in small nations like Britain, is the export, helping you find customers in other countries is even more important when you're in a a country the size of of Britain. And I'm not complaining about the size of Britain. I'm just saying exports are are really important for company, you know, if you start a company in a smaller country. Slightly less important advice if I were talking to a US-based person because that market in the US is so huge. And then the fourth is follow-on finance. And, And this is really important. If you have angels or seed VCs and they run out of money or they're not willing to invest in your second, your third, or your fourth round, that's a bad signal to the next VC. So the other thing I would make sure is that they got some powder dry for your next few rounds and that they also would expect and welcome some rounds because some angels, for instance, don't follow on, but that is unhelpful to you as you need to grow. Thank you for that. And how about you, Sam? Is there anything you'd like to add there? Well, certainly the way we look at it here is you want partners that can help you anticipate and solve problems in your entrepreneurial journey, whether they're operational problems, whether they're to do with your market, hiring issues. Um, You have your plate full as an entrepreneur and you want that sort of deep empathy, but also the ability to anticipate and solve the problems. In many of the cases, what we see is businesses that have got a great product, fantastic founders, but at the same time, they are selling into situations where they're competing with some pretty large businesses. And our ability to help them open doors 
so that the upstart business gets the same hearing with whoever the buying purchasing manager is, is something that we always look to do for them. So if you are in the healthcare space, you want to, the NHS to take you as seriously as they would take Microsoft. How we help them develop the skills they need to operate at that level is something we look at. And finally, as Cherie said, scaling. Most entrepreneurs, you know, if you're going to grow your business to those huge valuations, you need to penetrate other markets. And when you're trying to penetrate other markets in Europe in particular, you come across a lot of regulatory issues, some kind of friction. And we spend a lot of time thinking about how entrepreneurs, founders prioritize, think about their go-to-market strategy in these different markets in order to succeed. And it's almost like the Avengers, you, you, and the word partner is really important. Who joins your team, you join a much bigger team with special powers to help you overcome any tension or barriers that you might not have met before. But you want people who have overcome those barriers before and know others that can bring to bear immediately and you know that they want you to win. That's That mindset is really important because you're going to be around a table with them for a long time. Do you have to really like the person you're investing in? You know, do you have to have that feeling like you could go to the pub and have a pint with them? For me, if I put my investor hat on, if you like the person, you really want them to win. And you're going to do anything to help them slay any dragon that they come upon. It's also vitally important that you believe in the idea, you understand the market, and that you think that what they're proposing is important and will get lots of customers. But your desire to help them play with that Rubik's Cube and put it together, when it falls apart, help them put it back together is important. For me, part of the liking of the entrepreneur is also understanding why they want to solve that problem and why they're committing to it. Testing And this is probably more important at the angel stage, and it needs to be fleshed out before it gets to the stage that Sam is talking about. Is their commitment to solving this a fundamental one? Do they have that sympathy with the customer and that want to solve that problem? Or is this something that, well, they think might be interesting, but they're not sure. You have to be sure particularly when you start raising other amounts of capital from other companies or getting that follow-on funding. And part of that is, can they get people on their team that like them, create glue? Are they a talent magnet? The chemistry and the ability to form a team is super important. And what about you, Sam? What do you think if the founder isn't the right person to take the business to every stage of growth? Yeah, I think the chemistry, firstly, in terms of the idea and the vision is important. You've got to have a shared vision around the opportunity how you can harness and exploit the opportunity and where you want to get to. But over time, because of the intensity of the nature of building a business, if you've got any real serious investors and if investors are putting in serious cash, then they are, you spend a lot of time together. A life journey that is not just in the business. You know, they get married or divorced, they buy a home, their children do things. So all of that interaction is part of the journey. And I think it's very hard if you are a very committed investor to stay aloof. You develop deep empathy and understanding of where they're coming from. If you've got that open relationship and self-awareness, some of these things become obvious. You know, I've seen founders that have fallen out. The VCs had to decide which of the founders takes the business forward. I've seen situations where a founder is incredibly good 
but is not the CEO of a public company or is not going to be the one that can scale the business globally. And then there are questions as to, are you bringing people in to support them while they do it? Are you bringing someone in instead of them? Lots of different ways of answering these questions. Openness and self-awareness and having a transparent discussion is the best way forward in those situations. Right, I need an investor. And after listening to all these very clever and enlightening things that Sam and Sherry have to say, how do they go about finding an investor? Sam, I'll come to you first. I've got a business I'm looking at. And I met the gentleman when I was science and innovation minister at his lab in 2018. He contacted me in 2020 that he had this business idea and we've kept in touch since. And during that process, the business has changed a number of times and he's been very persistent. I have seen the journey he's been on and I'm pretty excited at looking at it to see if it, there's something that we can uh, do together. You can't be backwards in going forwards than this if you are raising capital or even if you want to build a business. I think if you identify anyone who could help your business reach that next stage, do your research and you find a way to reach them. And even if they don't respond the first time or if they say no the first time, keep going. Great advice, Sam. And how about you, Sherry? What would you like to add? Uh, well, I think I completely agree with what Sam said. You are trying to find a good fit for you. Every no is usually some insight into something you may not have thought about. And so I think every conversation with every investor is an opportunity to learn a little bit more about other diverse ways of looking at your business that allow you to be stronger and more resilient. And I think the VC community is pretty good in the in the UK and also the angel in that if they say no, they let you know why not. Um, and the other thing that is often helpful is they might point you into a direction of somebody else they know who would be interested. So if it's a no, I say, oh, if it's not right for you, can you recommend anybody else who you think it would be? Because I get asked to do things that I absolutely would not be able to add value to. And I can spot that in a second. But I probably know two or three people that would be able to add value. And it's just a case of either me offering that. And if I you know, don't, then you can ask and you keep the conversation going. For me, it's also a bit of a test of can they listen? Are they listening? So if it's a not yet because you haven't thought about this, well, brilliant. You know, what I'm going to go do as an entrepreneur is do that thing and then come back to them and say, hey, Sam, thanks for that great advice. You said you couldn't because we weren't doing this. We've now got that. Let's talk again. All the way through that iteration is, do they listen? Do they respond quickly? And do they come back? Absolutely brilliant advice there. I could speak to you both all day and Sam and Sherry, I expect your inboxes will positively explode after this podcast episode goes out. Now everyone knows you're such a font of knowledge, a pair of you. Um, so thank you so much for sharing all of that insight with us today. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us. Thank you very Thanks much. Thanks for having us. Next time, I get to go behind the scenes of a global success story. We really do groundbreaking research with our customers. So we provide the environment for them to research into new materials we use now. Quantum computing, which is developing really fast. For example, Google Maps. If you imagine you want to go from here to Edinburgh, it will be able to look at every possible route and give you the most efficient route. Whilst today, because of the amount of computing power it would require to do that, it wouldn't be cost effective.
That was Tom Leonard, Manufacturing Manager at Oxford Instruments, based in Oxfordshire, England, the company that invented the MRI scanner. We'll find out what success really feels like when you get things right, and we have some valuable insights from the company's Managing Director, Stuart Woods. You can hear that in the final episode of our series, The Science of Business. I'm Hannah Previtt, a business journalist with The Times. This podcast has been brought to you by ARC, the smarter partner for science, and is a Fresh Air production. Follow or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode.